attending the meeting they call the International Elders Meeting at uh, Amaravati Monastery recently. It was an occasion when there were 85 bhikkhus together from 38 different monasteries and hermitages. And many people said they found it inspiring to see so many senior bhikkhus, or mostly senior bhikkhus from around the world meeting together. It's a sign of how far the teachings of Buddhism and in particular Lumpur Cha have spread around the world, not just in terms of books and recorded talks, but actually actual establishment of monasteries and places of practice. <coughs> Perhaps the main theme of the meeting was to discuss how to preserve the tradition of Lumpur Cha and his teachings, which led on to the question, well, what is the tradition of Lumpur Cha? And different speakers gave their particular offering of reflections anecdotes and what they felt was important in the, in the tradition. There were certain common threads in the way people spoke. Perhaps the most obvious one, which the very meeting pointed to, was the emphasis Lumpur Cha gave to the importance of harmony in the Sangha, in the community of monks, novices, anagarikas and nuns. Always emphasizing that the harmony of the Sangha is for the benefit of everyone. There's one set of teachings the Buddha gave that was quoted several times, the Appari Aparihaniya Dhammas that uh, are for the progress and development of the Sangha and for the non-decline of the Sangha. So meeting in harmony, like meeting to coming together at the same time, leaving together at the same time, meeting in harmony something that Lumpur Cha emphasized. Not establishing new practices or new views on the Dhamma that are not in line with what the Buddha taught and preserving the practices, the Dhamma, the Vinaya that the Buddha did teach not practicing with 
craving or you following craving or making craving as a as your motivation in the practice these are just some of the themes of the aparihaniya dhammas <clears throat> And Lumpur Cha emphasized in the harmony of the Sangha as something, a theme to recollect, but to value, and not to see it always in terms of just giving up to the Sangha or service of the Sangha, but to see also one gains from that, one gains the peace and supportive conditions that come when the Sangha is in harmony and can meet together in harmony. Whether it's an international meeting from around the world, or just in a daily basis. If you look at a lot of our daily practices, it involves harmonious coming together for the meal, or for a work project, or for chanting and meditation. And individuals benefit from that. You benefit from the atmosphere of harmony. And it's also a way of training to give up certain preferences that may be based on craving. It's a very direct way to give up some of one's preferences if one has to attend to some group activity and perform it in conjunction with other people. That can be a very useful way of practicing. Other themes that came up that people felt defined Lumpur Cha's style of practice, particularly the what we call the Gichawatas, that are found in the Thai book, the commentary, the Pupasika Wanana, which Lumpur Cha used to have read out regularly as part of the Vinaya training at the monastery. So particularly things like Acharya Wata. I've come to be familiar with this, the development, the sense of taking care of elders, listening to elders, following their instruction, and physically looking after them. So when they're sick, or washing their bowl, washing their robes, serving elders in different ways. Again, something that's for the strength and the growth of the Sangha is very much the flavor of the teaching of Lumpur Cha. And not just centered around himself, but he encouraged it as a way of practice in the wider Sangha. So novices and Namaka Bhikkhus practicing Acharyawata with more senior Majimas or more likely to be terrors. But also the reciprocity, reciprocity of that. You know, when you practice a chariyawata with a tera, say, you develop a closer relationship with that monk, whether he's the teacher in the monastery or just a senior member of the community. That relationship is a form of mentoring, or it's a teaching relationship. So develops a channel that Dhamma can flow from the 
usually from the senior monk to the junior. One develops friendships that can last a lifetime in the robes. And one can get reflections that maybe are more useful for one's particular character and practice based on the experience of the terror as you attend to them, assist them, that relationship can be very valuable. And it's not always based around personality. Ajahn Chah always used to say, Chariawata, it's not like you do it because you like the monk, that you attend to them. You do it as a training. <coughs> Just as that senior monk may give you advice, support in your practice, and they might not particularly like you or feel strongly connected on a personal level, but they do it in, the Dhamma, in terms of Dhamma Vinaya. Similarly, one attends to the senior monk, whether one likes them or not. And this is, a, again, a, a way one can let go of a lot of craving, Sakaya Ditti, on a daily basis, setting aside one's preferences and following the Vinaya training and what's appropriate. So this is a flavor, a theme that runs through our monasteries, practice of the different waters, and also just looking after the monastery. So say, Sainasana Wata, looking after the buildings, the facilities, not expecting the lay people who support the monastery to always have to do everything, but to, to be able to look after ourselves, practice contentment with what we have, and learn how to look after the monastery. Look after, looking after incoming bhikkhus, akandukha wata. And if you're an, in, an incoming bhikkhu when you visit other monasteries to practice, you know, asking where, where are the toilets? <laughs> it's the first most practical question you have to ask in a monastery. Providing toilets that are clean and functioning for incoming bhikkhus and so on. Obviously there are many other aspects to Lumpur Cha's teaching and style of teaching. The harmony of the Sangha, the different core waters, practices, regulations and practices in the monasteries. The uh, practice of compassion in daily life, so the care for sick samanas. It's very much a part of our tradition. And then obviously on the side of the Dhamma, you know, the practice of meditation, the development of cultivation of mindfulness in daily life, using the Vinaya, but then also using meditation techniques and supportive conditions for the practice of meditation. Lumpur Liam gave a very fine talk, uh, not to the wider group, to a smaller group, about he felt the flavor of Lumpur Cha's practice was the practice of going against the kilesis, going against the grain, not giving in to craving. He thought that was a, an important feature of Lumpur Chao's way of teaching. 
there's always using situations, just ordinary situations that arose in daily life in the monastery to help others to see their craving or to prevent craving arising and to reflect on the practice of how not to give in to craving in different ways. Obviously everybody remembers stories and anecdotes about Rumpo Cha. Sometimes they may have been even exaggerated or embellished, but that's often what you find in books and talks and reflections on Ajahn Chah. When Lumpur Liam was pointing out how he, to keep up the tradition of Ajahn Chah is to you know, make use of this form, the Dhamma, the Vinaya, the living as a forest bhikkhu. You're making use of it to go against your craving so that you can go beyond craving, abandon it and experience liberation of heart, which is what we all aspire to. So he <clears throat> suggested that a lot of Ajahn Chah, Lumpur Chah's teachings were based around his own personal experience, having left his study monastery when he was a young bhikkhu, um, partly prompted by the death of his father, and his father had encouraged him to follow the Tudonga tradition and really go deep into the practice to make more merit in this term that you find everywhere in Thailand in practices often equated with tambun, making merit. And the greatest merit is the development of bhavana. And with the foresight of his father and then his own wisdom, Lumpur Cha saw the, to develop bhavana when we have to keep up the Tudonga tradition, so he emphasized a lot using the 13 Tudonga practices because he had used them in his own life. So staying in the forest, uh, eating one meal a day, eating in the bowl, and so on. And just the dedication to the training of the mind for the abandoning of craving. So we have you know, reflections Lumpur Cha brought up over and over again for the Sanghas. You know, really dedicate your life to the practice because you're dealing with deeply ingrained attachments, cravings, habits of mind. And the more you can really devote yourself to the practice, really commit to it, well, the more chance you have of uprooting and changing your mind, changing it through uprooting craving. So there's this flavor of just really dedicating oneself to the training in the Vinaya, taking it on board, practicing renunciation, simplicity, contentment, and really devoting oneself to development of mindfulness, so particularly using meditation objects, the breath or butto, and using that as an anchor in daily life, really committing to training the mind rather than always following the flow of craving. As we know in the monastic life, we, we learn to practice as a bhikkhu as we come in, but the mind can still be bringing up craving and attachment all the time. So it's really learning to tackle that 
through the development of mindfulness and meditation is uh, our aim and the, the whole lifestyle is supporting that. Lumpur Chao would say, you know, I gave my life for the practice or I put my life at stake for the practice to bring you this Dhamma that I teach you. And he was speaking from experience. So when he did go out in the forest when he was a young monk, you know, he was in even life-threatening situations. He did go to forests where there were tigers and elephants and snakes, where there was often little support, very simple food that perhaps was not so nourishing and not so healthy, but as a Tudonga bhikkhu, he had no choice. He just had to go with the flow and accept whatever came his way. Disease, there was a lot of disease and malaria around, and he got malaria and had little medication other than, say, some herbs from the forest to deal with it. But that, it would seem from his talks and his style of practice, you know, it's that constant renewal of commitment to the practice and trusting in that rather than going the way of the world all the time, always seeking comfort, convenience, They're always expecting to go to see a doctor when you're ill, that kind of thing. He was really willing to put everything at stake for the Dhamma, for the Vinaya, for the practice. And obviously for him that worked. He came through it and became an enlightened teacher, very wise and very skilled at finding ways to teach others and pass the Dhamma on to others, just using the reflections in daily life, using the, obviously the teachings of the Buddha, but then applying them in just very normal situations. And he understood the mind very well, and that came through in the way he taught. He understood how we suffer, how it arises, and how to deal with it effectively. So he could pass on that teaching based on his experience rather than just say from books or philosophizing about the Buddhist teachings. He, you, people who live with him and even just hearing his talks now, you get that sense of his speaking from experience, which gives a certain weight and value to what he says. So as I said, he went off into the forest for many years wandering and had to face illness. So there's a famous time when he got very sick with malaria and had no real medication or help to deal with it. And he was so sick he thought he might die. He was ready to burn his own monk's identity booklet, had the matches ready to set it on fire so that he wouldn't be a burden to the villagers in that area where he was staying because they didn't know where he was from and they would feel obliged to take his body back to his home village to, for a cremation if he died. So out of compassion for them, he was ready to burn his monk's ID book. And then he heard a deer barking in the forest, just like here. And he uh, reflected on his situation when he was feeling a bit down, feeling sorry for himself, and said, well, these deer, they have no medicine no support when they're sick and they're out there in the forest 24 hours a day. If they can do it, then I can do it. 
So just hearing that deer bark gave him a bit of inspiration. And they say it was around, around the same period his own family held a, a funeral for him, having lost touch with him and assuming he was dead. They actually held a funeral for him in the local monastery in his home village. <coughs> if you think about it psychologically, you know, that's, his family are prepared to give up on him and accept he must be dead now because they hadn't heard from him. That must have been a, a very kind of challenging moment for them and maybe even for him. But as, as it would happen, his mother's brother was the head monk of the village. So he had some influence and connections so he could send someone out looking, traveling for quite a long way. And in those days it wasn't easy to travel until he got news of Ajahn Chah and realized that he wasn't dead. But he eventually caught up with him and invited him to come back home. And because there were no maps and signposts in those days, he said, just follow the Moon River, this river that runs through Ubon to the Mekong River. He said, just follow the Moon River and you'll get back to Ubon and back to your home village, which is not far from the Moon River. Lumpur Chara didn't head back immediately, he took his time, but he did start the movement back until he eventually arrived home. And seeing that the local cremation ground wasn't so suitable because it was a bit too close to the village, then the villagers suggested he should go and camp in Wat Bapong or Bapong Forest, which later became Wat Nong Bapong. But during his travels, you know, he really used the opportunity to train. He didn't do things always the easy way or the comfortable way. He got into the habit of being very patient and persistent with his efforts in the practice. So he did go to charnel grounds and had to deal with fear of ghosts, fear of death. And really, you know, if you read the forthcoming biography, you'll see he really put himself, it really tested himself. There's a famous story where he was in the charnel ground and they brought in a corpse and had a funeral and then everyone left, but the corpse was still there burning on the funeral pyre. And then in the middle of the night as he's meditating next to it, he actually heard footsteps couldn't see what it was, but they sounded very real, walking towards him. He said the most utmost fear, but just determined to train his mind not to give in to craving, wipawadanha, fear of death, the wish just to run away. And so he sat through the whole night without leaving, even to the point in the morning, his, because his bladder had been full, his urine turned to blood. But obviously, training himself to give up some of his attachment to the five kendas and the fear that comes from you know, fear of death, fear that something, a ghost or some being might harm you in some way. It's based on your attachment to your kendas. Just being willing to look at that, face that, go through it. 
fear of animals. He did encounter you know, wild dogs. He was in areas where there were tigers. Again, being willing to face that and look at how it arises based on delusion, the delusion of self and the attachment to the candors. The fear of death through illness, through wild animals, fear of ghosts. He's getting right down, obviously was getting right down to his contemplating the basic attachment to the physical body, feelings, perceptions, thought formation, sense consciousness. And similarly with lust, the other main sort of plague of bhikkhus, sexual desire and sensual desire. Sometimes lust comes out in desire for beautiful things, beautiful requisites, nice food, beautiful kutis and monasteries, or it can come in just a more obvious sexual desire. So he learned to be very careful around that. So Lumpur Liam gave a recollected one time when he was in the forest staying with just one layman as an assistant <clears throat> and there was a local woman, a young woman whose father, her husband had died so she was very distraught and came by a few times to talk to Ajahn Chah out of compassion he talked to her but very quickly he realised her genuine faith could easily turn into lust for her, for him looking for company because she is now a widow or could come from him wanting her attention so being willing to just uproot himself from that situation with and calling on the layman and say we're leaving and the layman, layman says what time in the morning will we leave and the pacha in the middle of the night just says we're leaving right now and just walking off in the dark rather than risk his practice in any way again that sense of commitment to training the mind to give up craving rather than take the easy way or the foolish way you might say following craving in different situations that was the background his own personal practice that he brought to the training and this is where a lot of the say the anecdotes or personal experiences people had living with him came from where he he himself has conquered his own craving, understands how it arises, how to abandon it, and then can pass that on to others in a very skilled way, just in very ordinary situations, you know, helping point out to people where their thinking is wrong or their behavior is wrong because it's following craving. But not in a sort of a personal way, just sort of criticizing people, but just helping them to establish more awareness and see how craving might be the, the thing motivating them in a certain situation and see how it may be the cause of their suffering. <clears throat> you know, flavor, another theme or flavor of his practice that people remember is that you know, he said, don't be afraid of suffering. Because suffering really is the, the beginning point of our practice. Often we come into the rose because we've seen some of the suffering of, of life, of existence, of samsara, which leads to the search to find a way out of suffering, which often brings us to the Buddhist teachings. 
But then as we're practicing our own habits are always sneaking back into our experience and we often keep falling back into seeking what craving desires, seeking comfort, the easy way, seeking to follow our views and opinions, seeking to get rid of experiences or avoid experiences that we don't like. It's, dealing with craving is not a one-off thing, it's a, con, a consistent part of our practice, it's a an ongoing practice. So he used to say, don't be afraid of dukkha or suffering because that's where you'll find craving and that's where you can abandon craving, right there where the suffering is coming. So everybody has their recollections of times where they were suffering and often over very ordinary situations like when they're ill or got pain in their legs from sitting too long or not getting some requisite that they want or some being with people that they don't particularly like. All kinds of situations that could be turned around to see that this is where the origin of suffering is, this craving in the mind. And this is what I must be mindful of and abandon in that situation. And this is what Lumpur is remembered for. Where even lay people coming to see him over and over again, getting them to look back at their own minds and see really that the source of suffering is in their own minds rather than always blaming the world or deludedly thinking if I can control the world or make it different, then that will end my problem. If you think about it, it's the most compassionate thing a teacher can do is help you to see your suffering and the cause of your suffering and how to abandon it and go beyond it. You know, the greatest friend we have is a, is a Kalyana Mitta who can point out, you might say, explain the Four Noble Truths but point them out in daily life, remind us of them, point to them over and over again. But even then, you know, Ajahn Chah always said he wasn't teaching people to attach to him. So that's another thing, theme that came up, you know, how we, there's the, we use the training. We use the korwat, the vinaya, the meditation techniques, the reflections, developing right view. But not to attach, not to attach to a Lumpur Chah as a person, not to attach to the Buddha but to use them as a vehicle, a tool for training ourselves to abandon the causes of suffering. So ultimately it's about turning around and developing these skills for ourselves, becoming our own teacher, and using the reflections and the training that Lumpur Chara has passed down to us, but learning ultimately to be our own teacher because we have to learn to do it for ourselves. So in that sense, there's not always a right answer. Like when people shared reflections, often they understood that, you know, it may be in one context, one situation, you can quote, Lumpur Chah said this, or this is how he practiced. And it might have been correct. But then at another time, he may have seen, it might seem he might have done something a bit different. And that's the nature of, the practice because everybody's 
craving and defilement arises at different times in different ways. And the practice may vary a bit. Sometimes we are creative ourselves, dealing with our own particular attachments. Sometimes the teacher is the creative one, helping us. But the, the greatest friend we have is wisdom. And we get the wisdom from the teacher first, but then we have to internalize it. And that's, you know, there's nothing more valuable than the wisdom, the insight, the understanding that helps us to abandon craving. <clears throat> in the end, that's more valuable than anything else in this world. And as bhikkhus, that's what we're practicing. You know, we have practiced renunciation. We've given up the, the lay life where you're earning money and seeking sense pleasures and accumulating wealth and so on. We've made that decision to abandon that way. And now we have to really develop the wisdom that will help free the mind from craving and therefore from suffering. And that will be our greatest friend. So if, if you might say, what's Lumpur Chao's legacy? Why is it his teaching being so effective? Well, he's very effective in passing on wisdom and getting people to develop their own wisdom. Because true wisdom in the Buddhist sense, it frees you from suffering. It's obviously, it works. You know, an insight into where you're holding on to a wrong view or a wrong practice or a habit of speech or action or a mental habit that's leading to suffering. You know, the insight that helps you abandon that, change it for something better, developing the path, is obviously a, something that will stick with you you remember it, it can be quite profound insights into anicca dukkha anatta in different situations. You know, they stick with you. And true wisdom is like a true friend. It sticks by you through the thick and thin, the ups and downs of life. Which is why Lumpur Cha encouraged it so much. Develop, develop the sila that brings up the awareness and you know, brings you enough peace that you're not causing much trouble for yourself or others. And then keep reflecting back, using mindfulness and then wise reflection to see the truth. So over and over again, that exhortation to do that. So that meeting was a very, you might say, successful meeting, very harmonious and good exchanges of reflections, both on the past, people living with Ajahn Chah, remembering that, but also for the present, how to apply these teachings, how to have continuity in the practice, in the changing nature of the modern world, the globalization of the world, with air travel and internet and media in different ways, and the comings and goings, the changing nature of the external conditions, which we can't do much about, you know, how to apply the practice in the midst of that. So it would seem Lumpur Chao's legacy is still here with us for us to make use of, you know, like children that have inherited some wealth from their dead grandparents or parents 
you know, that inheritance is here, it's up to us to make use of it. And they say you, know, you, you can measure somebody's barami or their wasana and this, or their karmic accumulations by how, how, how well they use their inheritance. In the worldly sense, you, if you inherit a lot of money or wealth, well, some people will use it to make more wealth and go on and be successful. Others will blow it all and end up penniless. And the Dhamma is the same. We've inherited, it's our good fortune, we've inherited this teaching and way of training from Lumpur Cha. It's up to us how well we make use of it, whether we preserve it and develop it and make something better of our lives out of it or blow it all, lose it all. That's really up to us and that's what we're here for. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.